Then within your Bibles this morning, congregation, we would invite you to turn to Romans 1. Uh, We'll be reading a section from verse 18 through 25. Uh, That section can be found in your pew uh, Bible on page 1294. Uh, After we read from Romans 1, uh, we will reference John 17, verse 17, and then read from our Belgic Confession, Article 2, you can find that article in your Trinity Psalter hymnal on page 855. So we read from the inspired Word of God, Romans 1, beginning at verse 18. And then after the reading of the Word of God, a summary of the truth of the Word of God as we find that in article 2 of our Belgic Confession. Here now together the reading of the Word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, They did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Then we just reference a verse that we would encourage all of the people of God to commit to memory, and that is John 17, uh, verse 17, where our Lord Jesus Christ in His high priestly prayer prays this following petition, Sanctify them by Your truth. Your Word is truth. Thus far, our reading from the Word of God. We then turn to the Belgic Confession, Article 2, given a title, The Means by Which We Know God. And the article reads, We know Him, that is, the one true God. We know Him by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God. His eternal power and His divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, verse 20. All these things are enough to convict men and to leave them without excuse. Second, He makes Himself known to us more openly by His holy and divine Word, as much as we need in this life for His glory and for the salvation of His own. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps you will... Recollect that last Sunday we began our consideration of the truth of the Word of God as that truth is summarized in the Belgic Confession. And we introduced our sermon last week by noticing how beautifully the Word of God begins. How how with a simple statement that is absolutely profound in its implications, the Bible just simply states, in the beginning, God. We noted how Genesis 1 does not begin with an elaborate structure of philosophical arguments for the existence of God, but rather it just states the existence of God. And now, boys and girls, you also can, I trust, think about how the 
Bible continues in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. In the beginning, God created. So presupposing the existence of this one infinite spiritual being who is three in persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Word of God then goes on to describe the work of God. The work of God especially in the realm of creation as God calls out of nothing the existence of all things that exist. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You might say it this way. In the beginning, God revealed Himself by His work of the creation of the heavens and of the earth. Uh, to quote one former Reformed minister who's now been translated into glory, P.Y.D. Young, the Christian church rests in the assurance that God makes Himself known. Without revelation, he continues, all religion becomes impossible. And so it's absolutely critical for you and for me and also for our young people and for our boys and our girls and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren to be reminded of this absolute truth that there is a sure foundation for the understanding of who God is, not to be found in our own imagination, but rather to be found in the self-revelation of God. Perhaps to say it much more concisely is to simply echo the inspired word of John 17, Your word is truth. And as the truthfulness of that Word proclaims in the beginning God created, we are confronted with the wonderful reality that all that we see testifies to the power and to the majesty of the one true God of heaven and of earth. This morning we want to consider these truths underneath this theme, our belief. And again, when we use the word our in our theme, we're speaking about the corporate body of the Christian church, especially as she finds herself uh, in the Reformed community of believers. So, our belief concerning revelation. We'll notice this morning, first of all, the need for revelation. And then secondly, the content of revelation. And then third, the role of revelation. So, our belief concerning revelation, the need, the content, and the role of revelation. Much could be said about the need for divine self-revelation. But this morning, we limit ourselves to these two basic statements about why it is that we, and when we speak about we, we ought to pause for just a moment, although later articles of the Belgian Confession will deal with humanity and human beings and human persons, but we ought to at least for this morning note that when we speak about we, we are speaking about human beings who have been created by God in the image of God. And this, I believe, is one of the most important truths for all people of God to understand, but maybe especially young people, that they are created in the image of God. Because our world, and in many ways, Romans 1, 18-25, is, so to speak, the hermeneutical lens that you can hold up to the culture. So you ask, maybe, and I hear this question, and it bubbles up in my own heart, what in the world is going on? in our day and in our culture. Romans 1 tells us what is going on. Human beings are suppressing the knowledge of God. And God in an act of judgment is giving human beings over to themselves. And they continue to spiral down into the depths of idolatry. 
And so when you watch the news or when you read the reports of what is going on in our culture, always do so with the truth of Romans 1, 18-25 in the back of your mind. And one of the most important things for us to understand is that human beings have been created in the image of God. And so they are distinct from the rest of the created realm. Many things could be said about being created in the image of God. Uh, but the one thing that we want to point out this morning is being created in the image of God gives human beings, men, women, boys, girls, old and young, a unique capacity to receive and to understand the self-revelation of God in a way that is distinct from the rest of the brute animal realm and all of the inanimate aspects of creation. There is something unique about you and myself and the fact that we can, underneath the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, come to know God based upon His self-revelation. But there is a need for that self-revelation given God's transcendence and for a sure knowledge. Uh, to paraphrase the late theologian R.C. Sproul, one of the greatest needs for the church today is to be reminded that God is God. That God is God. And this was not some novel idea with R.C. Sproul. This is the reformed heartbeat of theology. So often, so many are so tempted to begin with man and his felt needs or her felt needs. But the Bible, of course, begins with God. And reformed theology begins with God. And our reformed confessions begin with God. And the, the heartbeat of the church must be this. God is God. And in that statement is an emphasis upon His transcendence. So the idea of the transcendence of God is that the single and simple spiritual being whom we call God is high above us. Infinitely exalted above us. Uh, what humanity has attempted to do ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden is to pull God down to our own level. And we have been perpetually addicted with the idolatrous practice of forming gods after our own imagination. Perhaps hammering them out of gold or building them out of wood. Or maybe in our own day, having unbiblical worldviews that we pursue as the chief end of man. Whether it be the exaltation of ourself or the materialism of our age or just living for the secular here and the now. And in contrast to all of that, the Bible consistently emphasizes the fact that God is God and that He is transcendent, that He is high above us in His infinite holiness. You can think of one passage from Scripture, Job 37, verse 23. Now listen to this carefully. As for the Almighty, we cannot find Him. Now if that was the, the end of the statement... We would have to throw up our hands in despair. God, the Almighty, we cannot find Him. But what the emphasis is on is that we cannot find Him according to some type of natural theology that we just follow our own reason. And we somehow climb up into the heavens and we conceive of a God. And, and why this is so distressing is because this spirit or this lie is impacting especially uh, the institutions for higher learning where man congratulates himself at the pretended ability that we can follow our own reason in some type of enlightened way and that we now can understand the infinite 
Job says, as for the Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is excellent in power, in judgment, and abundant justice. Or as Romans 11, verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. So as we transition into considering the need for revelation and by way of a sure knowledge, I just simply put this question before you as I put it before myself. Do you derive your knowledge of God? Do you derive your beliefs about God from the self-revelation of God Himself or from your own thoughts, your own ideas, your own imagination? It has to be from the self-revelation of God. Because that is the only thing that will give us a sure knowledge of God. Thanks be to God that God is knowable. Yes, He's absolutely infinite and transcendent, so we can never totally comprehend God, but we can know Him. Because this is eternal life, you will remember from last Sunday. This is eternal life that they may know you. And they know you by the self-revelation of God Himself. And so for a sure knowledge, we need Revelation of God. We dare not trust our own ideas. And to try to put this, not not in some type of shocking way, but to try to put this before us in all of its powerfulness, you and I dare not leave time and space and enter into the eternal realm and face the infinite spiritual being that we call God with some hope that it's based upon our imagination. Unless the Lord returns, you and I will have a deathbed. And there will be a moment in which we have to say goodbye to the here and the now. And we enter into the eternal. And at that moment, We dare not leave this side of earth saying, well, I think maybe God is like this. I've met people that that's all they have. I'm not real sure, but I think maybe God is like this. I think He just evaluates your intentions and if your intentions were good in life and if you just tried to love your fellow man, I think maybe He'll take the good and the bad, and He'll weigh them out, and hopefully the good is greater than the bad. We dare not live that way, and we especially dare not die that way. In contrast, we need to be able to lie upon our deathbeds and enter into the eternal realm saying, I know that God is a God of grace and a God of mercy. And that He has power in and through His Son to raise up those who are stricken with the infirmity of their own sin and depravity. I know these things to be true. And we're living in a postmodern culture. I don't need to remind you of that. We're living in an age in which doubt and uncertainty is congratulated and celebrated. And in a countercultural sort of a fashion, you and I are called to live saying we know these things to be true. And the world will ask in one form or another for the reason for the hope that is within us. And when they ask, how can you be so certain of these things? Our answer has to be because God has revealed Himself. He has revealed Himself in the entire realm of creation, but more fully and clearly within the written Word of God. 
And so that brings us into what we can consider in our second point, the content of Revelation. Uh, now, if you scan ahead, you'll notice that the Belgian Confession spends several articles dealing with uh, the revelation of God. Uh, several articles, especially dealing with the written Word of God. Listing uh, the books of the Bible that are considered canonical. Uh, things of that nature. And we will get to that, Lord willing, in due time. So you might say this morning we're looking at uh, a bit broader picture, a, a bit more general. What is the content of Revelation? Well, based upon passages within Scripture, such as Psalm 19, Reformed theology makes uh, a distinction between what we call general revelation, or perhaps natural revelation, and special revelation. Uh, I always told my catechism students, general revelation is called general because it's given to all men, all humanity, all mankind, generally speaking. Every single person who ever comes into existence within this created realm is confronted with the revelation of the work of God. And that Work of God in creation reveals general basic truths about God, especially His divinity and His power. Now, special revelation is called special. Uh, again, this isn't a catechism type of a level of explanation because it reveals things about God to special individual persons, uh, especially within the realm of the church or the administration of the covenant. Uh, so Romans 3 uh, asks about one of the benefits of the historical administration of the covenant. Uh, what advantage then has the Jew? Well, he has much advantage because unto them are committed the oracles of God. And you and I who were privileged, and I assume that was the majority of us, you and I who were privileged enough to be born, baptized, raised in the community of faith within the Christian church, I often reflect upon this in my own life and I ask others about this. And as I've begun making uh, some visits to some of the more mature members, I ask, so were you born in the church? Were you baptized in the church? Oh, yes, yes. Were you catechized in the church? Yes. What a remarkable privilege this is. Because many of us, from our youngest and tenderest days, we had that special revelation of God. The Word of God. That explained the grace and the mercy of God that provides the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But we must limit ourselves this morning uh, to consider at least two aspects of the content of divine self-revelation. Speaking now about what we call general or natural revelation, the first means that is mentioned by Article 2, first by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe. Uh, this aspect of God's self-revelation displays the existence of God. And that's why Romans 1, verse 21, the Apostle Paul can say about all humanity in general, they, that is, all persons, they knew God. It's only the fool in Psalm 14, verse 1, who denies the existence of God. And even as the foolish atheist denies the existence of God, that they have to suppress, they have to push down the reality of the existence of God that you might say is impressed upon them by the very fact that they are created in the image of God. And you might say our calling as the Christian church, as we apologetically defend the faith, is not so much to come down into the valley of unbelief and to do warfare on that level, but rather to take the high ground of the revelation of God and say to an unbelieving world, you know God exists. 
Now therefore acknowledge His existence by humbling yourselves, repenting. You can think of the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 as he interacted with all of the leading philosophers of his day. He says to the Epicureans and to the Stoics, you know God exists. Now therefore glorify Him. And that is also what we say to anyone who may hear these words. Whether in this sanctuary, or through the radio waves, or through the internet. If you are pretending to deny the existence of God, you know God exists. Acknowledge Him. Glorify Him. Humble yourself before Him. While it is still the day of grace, Because one of the main truths that is revealed within God's general revelation is that there is one only true God who is the only proper object of worship. Part of being created in the image of God, as we've referenced earlier, is not only the capacity to know God, but also the obligation to worship God. And to worship God in a unique way as we reflect Uh, the very character of God. And so there is this inescapable desire to worship. Now the sad thing is that idolatry perverts that inescapable desire to worship. And so that men, women, and children, uh, ever since the fall of humanity, instead of worshiping the one true God, they have hammered out their idols and they continue to do so today. But in the midst of that idolatry, of our own age comes this call. There is one object of worship. There is one only object of worship. And that is the one true God of heaven and of earth. And you see that emphasized also by the Apostle Paul uh, in Romans 1, uh, verse 21. Because although they knew God, what was, what was the condemnation upon these human beings who knew God? They did not glorify Him as God. They were not thankful. But they became futile in their thoughts. And one of the things about the unbelieving world that can be so frustrating for the Christian, but also that should be so sobering for the Christian, is that in futility, the unbeliever boasts arrogantly. The mind of the unbeliever is darkened as a result of the consequences of sin. And although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. And when you do not glorify God as God, yes, God is certainly a God of forbearance. He is a long-suffering God. But eventually, God gives people over to themselves. And He says, if I may say this respectfully, since you know that I exist, but since you are determined not to glorify Me, I will in My sovereignty allow you to go forth into the darkness of your own imagination and your own futility. And that congregation is why it is so vitally important to submit ourselves to the revelation of God and to acknowledge the existence of one only true God. And creation not only testifies that there is the existence of one only true God, but it also testifies to the glory or to the majesty or to the beautifulness of this God. And I use that word purposefully, beautifulness. Certainly we speak about the glory and the majesty of God, the holiness of God, and An article within the confession that we've considered last week mentioned a variety of his perfections or his attributes. But creation is a beautiful thing. If we may speak of it as a a thing. 
Now, yes, certainly, creation itself groans for redemption as it suffers the consequences of the sin of humanity. There are thorns and thistles that cause human beings to eke out an existence by the sweat of their brow. But our confession speaks about elegant characters or beautiful letters. And creation, whether it be the the fields of Iowa, whether it be the mountains of Colorado, whether it be the ocean fronts of one of the coasts, whether it be the woodlands of Canada, wherever you might go, whatever you might see, there is this never-ending testimony to the beautifulness of our God. Seen in some of the remarkable, most intricate details, details within creation. And so you can see even, boys and girls, something of the beautifulness of your God when you study the creation. When you look upon the eagle as it soars in the heights of the heavens in a way that you and I could never possibly do, as it spreads out its massive wingspan that it has been given underneath the creative act of God, we don't just look up, or at least we shouldn't just look up and say, wow, what a remarkable result of evolution and chance plus time. No, that's futile thinking. We ought to look up and we ought to say, behold the elegant beauty of the Creator. And we don't worship the eagle or the sun or the, the rivers. But we look upon these things and the Christian, the Reformed Christian, if they are especially given certain talents and, and certain desires to study the realms of sciences, the Reformed Christian ought to be the most excited person to say, behold the handiwork of my God. Look at what He has done. I will glorify Him in all aspects of my life because I see something of His remarkable beauty even in a stain-impacted fallen world. And now a question that perhaps puts this close to our heart as we walk through the days and the weeks and the months of our lives. Are we characterized more by saying, I can't believe what's going on in this culture. Terrible upon terrible. I don't know what in the world's going on with this world. But it's going from bad to worse in rampant speed. All of those things might be true in light of Romans 1. But is there something of us that also says, I see an elegant book with beautiful letters. Perhaps it's in the springtime fields. Perhaps it's in the flight of the eagles. Perhaps it's in the sand upon the seashore. I leave you to answer the question. I just simply put it before you as I put it before myself. Are we faithful to what we profess to believe? That this creative realm is an elegant book? A beautiful testimony to the divine power of our God? Well, what is exactly the role of revelation as we consider it in this realm of general revelation or natural revelation? That brings us into our third point. The role of revelation... I would say at least has this twofold aspect. First of all, to leave human beings without excuse, but then also to make us ponder. Oftentimes, individual persons 
when confronted with the biblical truth about the judgment of God upon unbelievers, will offer up this objection. Well, well, how can God punish someone if they didn't have the Word of God, if they didn't have the preaching of the Word of God? And the biblical answer, the Reformed answer, is that all persons who come into existence receive a testimony by way of the created order of the existence, as we've tried to explain in our second point, of the existence of one true God who is to be the object, the exclusive object of our worship. And so if you take an individual who had never in his entire life or in her entire life ever seen one sentence of Holy Scripture, that person is still without excuse because they did see the testimony of the created order. They were confronted with the truth of Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning God created. And not only was it a one-time fleeting confrontation, but you might say a person who lives 30, 40, 60 years has 30, 40, 60 years of daily being confronted with the never-ending testimony. There is a God who is to be worshipped and glorified by all of His creation. And so not that anyone will be able to muster some type of objection before the judgment seat of God given the expression of His majestic holiness. But if an unbeliever were to somehow stammer before the final judgment of God, I never knew you existed, God would be able to, and again I say reverently, rebuttal, the evidence was all around you. I gave you an elegant book with beautiful characters. You saw for 30, 40, 60, 80 years the sun rise and the sun set. The seasons come and the seasons go. You saw the birds take their flight and the fish follow their course. And so human beings are without excuse if they will not glorify God by worshiping Him. And so I would call for all of us to look up, look down, look all around. There is a God. And there is only one true God. And He is the object of our worship. And again, if these words fall on the ears of anyone who is worshiping anything else other than the one true God, my earnest plea to you is repent of your futility. And seek the Lord in the day of grace through Jesus Christ, His Son. The role of this general revelation also is to make us ponder. The Christian ought to be a thoughtful person. A reflective person. Now there is a danger, especially in our era when we are bombarded by all sorts of forms of media. When news comes in faster than we can even digest it, there's a danger that we lose the action of pondering. And for the encouragement of this action of pondering, I would point you to the psalmist. As he pondered, as he thought upon, as he reflected upon, the wonderful and beautiful truths about God revealed also in the natural realm. And so so you can think of the the Psalms, and as they, as they talk about the rock badgers, 
or other poetic literature, other wisdom literature, as the wisest man in the world, short of the Lord Jesus Christ, Solomon, as he ponders an ant. Boys and girls, have you ever looked at an ant and thought about an ant? Solomon apparently did. And he derives certain truths from that and how necessary it is for our own day and age when help wanted signs hang on every business. But so many seem unwilling to work. How, how beneficial it would be to say, consider the ant, thou sluggard. Now, of course, today you would be immediately criticized for being unkind and not politically savvy by saying, you sluggard. My point is if we ponder and if we reflect upon the truths that are revealed within creation, we will be helped in our pursuit of true wisdom. A true wisdom uh, that sees the wonderful truths of God also as they are revealed in the created realm. And so I do believe there is a radical transformation and maybe you want to say even an antithetical view concerning the, the Christian farmer harvesting his fields. And the unbelieving farmer harvesting his field. And the distinction ought to be this. And I only apply that to that vocation. It could be applied to all other vocations. The Christian farmer, as he brings in the abundance of the harvest, sees in that something of the creative work of his Father. And of the preservation and of the government of the universe. And glorifies God. Whereas the unbelieving farmer suppresses the knowledge of God and infutility of mind, says, I guess this is all a result of time plus chance multiplied by my own efforts. We all worship something. There is an encouragement and a call to worship the one only true God. Amen. Our Father in Heaven, we do this morning glorify You and praise You and thank You for painting, so to speak, such a portrait of Your divinity and of Your power. We know that it leaves us without excuse, but we also confess that many times through ignorance, uh, we, practically speaking, suppress the knowledge of God. And so we ask that this morning's activity might be a reminder that our eyes might be opened and that using the lens of Holy Scripture, we might look and behold and see something of You and of Your glory and of Your power all around us. We ask then for a blessing upon these words for the sake of the advancement of Your kingdom and the glorification of Your name. In Jesus, we pray. Amen.